So I'm going to talk today on the Ottoman archival materials that we have and what these materials say us on the events 1915. First, one clarification. I'm not going to talk on all archival materials that we have. There were two categories of archival materials, I would say. One is the archival materials that we have from the court martials that held 1919-1922 in Istanbul. These court martial records and documents are available for the researchers. This is one source of Ottoman documents related to Armenian genocide. And in this category of documents, in Istanbul trials, we have enough evidence which we call that shows the direct intent of the Ottoman authorities. This is not my topic. My topic is mostly today's Başbakanlık Arşivi, the archive of the Prime Ministry in Istanbul, and especially the ciphered office, Şifre Kalemi, and the documents that I received from this office, and I will talk about these category of documents and what these documents shows us. But before going into detail, uh, I would like to clarify one point. Just as with the Armenian genocide, we have two similar factions which have formed around different assessments of the Ottoman archival materials. These two factions, for our purpose here, can be called the official Turkish side and the side of critical scholars, or you can call Armenian side, whatever you want. According to Turkish side, the events of 1915 cannot be considered as genocide, a genocide. And to support the claim, the Turkish side utilized the Ottoman documents as their most important source, and according to them, Ottoman documents are infallible. This is the source. Consequently, the Turkish side regard the American, British, German, and Austrian documents as unreliable. According to this view, these documents in German archives, American archives, Austrian archives, distorted the events in order to achieve a political end. On the other hand, the critical scholars in the West, and mostly the Armenian scholars, maintain that only the Western archives are reliable and the Ottoman archives cannot be trusted. They were fabricated, they think, in order to cover up the genocide and are thus unreliable. The common log logic underlying both of these arguments is that both sets of documents are mutually exclusive. These documents contain irreconcilable differences. If you listen both sides, they will tell you this. 
and each party insists that its own particular favorite archival sources are the canonical one, the most reliable source, and conversely that the other party's documentation is wrong and is unreliable. So, there are four main reasons why the Western critical scholars mistrust the Ottoman archives. The first is that there is strong evidence suggesting that the archives were purged of documents related to Armenian issue just after the armistice. There are, I have 14 different sources and events that shows these archives were purged. For example, three categories of documents were purged from the archives and the prosecutor in Istanbul trial 1919 May in the main trial the prosecutor of the military tribunal said that in his, he mentioned three categories of documents. A, sort of files from the interior ministry were taken away and never brought back, according to some testimonies in the court. Second, documents related to the Teşkilat-ı Mahsusa, this special organization, and it was not an illegal organization. During all the times, Teşkilat-ı Mahsusa was a branch within the Harbiye Nezareti, within the defense ministry. So the documents related to special organization were purged. And third one, the documents of the Central Committee of Union and Progress Party had been stolen. And from other sources, we also know that the documents from defense ministry related to war and Armenian deportation were destroyed. Who tells this? Us, the minister of telegram and uh, communication. He gave this testimony 1919 June in Istanbul trial. He said that there was an order sent to the regions just after the armistice to destroy every document related to the war and defense ministry. So this is the one reason, the reason of the mistrust to the Ottoman documents. The second reason is related to the working condition of the Ottoman archives, the difficulty in obtaining catalogs, the arbitrary rejection of the request to photocopy documents, the dismissal of suspicious people from the archives, and the theft of research materials from visitors. This was the experience in 1990s. I would proudly say that these are not the case now. It changed dramatically, and now the working condition in Ottoman archives are really good. But this was the another reason that caused this mistrust towards the Ottoman archives. The third reason is the selective publication of Ottoman documents which appear to support Turkish claims. The Turkish archival ministry published one book after another in order to show that there were no genocide in 1915. All these reasons came together, create an atmosphere of mistrust against the Ottoman archival materials. And now I'm here to say just the opposite. Ottoman archival materials must be trusted as any other archival materials. And the Ottoman archival mat materials are mutually, are not mutually exclusive, just the opposite, they are in compliance with the Western archival materials. So the Ottoman documents, my central argument, 
supports and corroborates the narrative of Armenian deportation and killings as shown in Western archival sources. This is my basic argument, and I will give you only a reassessment of the Dahiliye Nezareti, Interior Ministry, the archival documents from the Interior Ministry. I'm not going in the details of the uh, court and the documents that we have from the trials in Istanbul. So, what we learned from the archival materials from Başbakanlık Arşivi, especially from the Interior Ministry documents. The first, I will make seven points in order to clarify and uh, then after that we can discuss uh, my points. Point one, what we learned from the documents that the Armenian genocide was not an isolated act of the Ottoman authorities, it was an act within a general plan which could be called population policy of the Ottoman authorities. There were a general resettlement plan implemented between 1913-1918, which aimed at the homogenization of Anatolia, and this population policy had two main components. One is towards the Muslim population of the non-Turkish origin, such as Kurds and Arabs. They were relocated and dispersed among the Turkish majority with the purpose of their assimilation. I will give some example. The other aspect of this population policy required the removal of non-Muslims people from Anatolia, as a result of which up to two million Armenians, Assyrians, and Greeks, the Christian population of Anatolia, were either expelled or massacred. Consequently, almost one-third of Anatolian population of that time, it was estimated around 17 million, almost one-third of the population of that time had been relocated or removed or partly killed. This plan implemented first in Western Anatolia, against the Greeks, spring of 1914, then expanded towards Armenian during the war years. 1914 winter months, the Union and Progress Party organized Teşkilat-ı Mahsusa units to terrorize the Greeks popula Greek population and the Greeks were forcibly expelled to Greece. There were no main target of intently killing of the population. The main, there were massacres, small range, there were attacks to the villagers, but the main idea was to put them on the ship and send them to Greece. And the estimate number is, differs from 500,000 to 1 million in this period of time, the number of Greeks who were expelled to Greece. And at the same time, there were official agreements also with Greece and Bulgarians to exchange the population of Muslim immigrants and 
to resettle the Muslim immigrants in these villages that the Greeks were expelled. I will read one document only as an example, and it will show that they didn't even wait until this agreement established. Uh, there were an agreement with Greece to exchange the population, but the Ottoman authorities didn't wait so long. This is a telegram written uh, from the uh, Directorate of General Security, 1914 May. It says, quote, since it will take too much time for the Commission, based on Venezuela's proposal to organize for the exchange of Macedonian Muslims and the Greeks of Aydın Vilayet, the Macedonian Muslims who are arriving little by little from the shores and moving inland should be housed in Greek villages. They started to empty the villages before they resettled the agreement and they put the Muslims in these villages. This is only one document that shows this. Uh, population exchange of that time. Point two. Point one was the, there was a general population policy and the expelling of the Greeks from the Western trace. Point two, according to these documents, we learned that before implementing the general population policy, the Ottoman authorities created maps of every region showing the ethnic demographic of each area. There was a problem. Problem was the census, Ottoman census. During the Abdul Hamid period, Muslims in the census were considered to be one group regardless of their ethnicity. Because of the pan-Islamic policy of Abdul Hamid and because of the general policy of the Ottoman authorities, even though no census was conducted during the period of Ittihad and Union, Ittihad and Teraki Union and Progress Party, there were regular secret censuses that began to catalog Muslim according to their ethnic origin. We can infer from some Ottoman documents that they had acquired maps of every region which included ethnic demographics of inhabitants before the First World War. For example, from a doc document dated February 14. We see that they wanted to be informed of the result of censuses in Basra, Mush, Bitlis, and one, these are certain provinces, and in another document, it is written that the priests and rabbis and other officials were responsible for providing information on their community's population fluctuations. If they did not fulfill their obligations, says the documents, they were to be punished. This is beginning of before the war. Before the res resettlement, they not only created the ethnic map from every region, but also a map of social map of the, each region. Uh, social one. What was asked to the region? Detailed information about the education of this ethnic group, about the language, about the economic situation of different ethnic groups, and the relationship between them. As one example, for example, in one telegram sent to Baghdad, informed information as to the number of Turks in the region, in Baghdad region, and their number in comparison to Arabs or 
and Kurds, along with the languages in the region, level of education of the region, and financial status was requested. This praxis continued during the war years. Central authority ordered the regional authorities, the governors of each provinces, to send regular reports about the changes of the population exchanges in that region. For example, one coded telegram dated July 2019-15, and this telegram was sent to all vilayets, all provinces, and local administrations, all mutasarrıflık, demanding that, quote, a map showing that the national identities of populations, both past and present, because there were relocation of the Armenians during that time, they were asking how many have you sent and how many remained and how many came to that uh, region, population both past and present, in all administrative units down to the village level, be sent immediately. And there are dozens of similar documents requesting different information in every region. This means they were keeping records almost every month about the population change in each provinces to keep track of the development. It was a very controlled population policy in that sense. Point three, there were, according to these Ottoman documents, there were at least four different reasons for the resettlement. There was not only one plan and one resettlement. Which we, we can get from the archives. The first was a planned effort to repopulate the villages emptied by the non-Muslims. The Armenian and Greek village were resettled, repopulated by the Muslims. Who were these? There were Albanians, Bosnians, mostly the immigrants from Caucasus. They were repopulated in the Armenian villages. This was the first population policy, the first reason. The second was relocate certain groups they were, that were regarded as politically dangerous, such as Kurdish and Arab tribes. The Arab resettlement mostly determined by political reasons. Jamal Pasha sent the Arabs from Syria in the central Anatolia and western Anatolia, and the number of Arabs, according to the Ottoman documents that we can infer, between 5,000 and 10,000. 5,000 Arabs were relocated from Syria in the uh, Anatolia, and because of mostly political reason. Uh, it was the same for the Kurdish tribes. When they relocate the Kurds, they choose the Kurdish tribes that could be a political problem for the central authorities. The third reason was a desire to provide sanctuary for Muslims coming in from the war zones. It was unexpected. For example, mostly during the Russian invasion in Eastern Anatolia, a lot of Muslim population escaped in the Anatolia, and there was a problem to resettle this group. This was another policy, population policy that was necessary. And the fourth reason, the fourth uh, important reason was the military reason. And this was especially against the Greek population in Black Sea region and in the Western 
region and the Greek population explicitly relocated because of the military reason and in the document it is always written only the name, they also named the villages that should be evacuated. Military authorities asked this to Istanbul and Istanbul sent the telegrams to the each region, let's say Izmir, this village should be evacuated because of military reasons. And these Greeks could come back after the armistice. This is very important to understand. Only military purposes, certain regions, Samsun region, for example, and it changed from year to year. For example, most of the Greeks were relocated from the Black Sea region when the war became a problem there, 1917 years. And so this is the basic four categories for the population. Part point four, the resettlement of the Muslims in the Christian villages began immediately after the expulsion of the Christians. We can infer from the documents that the time between vacating and resettlement was not more than one week in some regions. One re week they relocated, they took the Armenians away, and one week later they could resettled the Muslims in that region. It is amazing. It shows how central authorities planned all this population policy before the war. And there are documents, for example, May 4, 1915, May 16, 1915, that written to the Erzurum governor or Marash governor about how they should resettle the Muslim population in the villages that uh, emptied by the Armenians. So, point five, I mean, point four was the time differences between emptying and uh, repopulating. Point five, the main goal of the resettlement policy of different Muslim ethnic groups was their Turkification. This is clearly detailed in the Ottoman documents. In order to achieve this end, Muslim groups were separated from their religious leaders and were settled in different areas. Not only were the leaders placed away from their group, but the group itself was dispersed throughout Anatolia. Before relocating the Muslim groups, the government demanded concrete information about the structure of the tribes, their languages, and their relation with the Turks. For example, a telegram dated May 2nd, 1916, sent to Diyarbakir, the Talat Pasha, the uh, interior minister, described the intention of resettlement policy of the Kurds. And the main intention was, according to that document, was to make the Kurds forget their ethnic and cultural identity. It is written in the document. They should not be resettled in that document. It is written to the, sent to the Arbaker. They should not be resettled in areas that would allow them to keep their national identity. It was in the document, the area of Urfa. The, the uh, uh, Kurds from the Arbaker should not be moved and resettled around the Urfa area because there were a lot of Arabs in the document, it says, and among Arabs, the Kurds could not be assimilated. In another document, for example, dated May 4, 1916, it is written that the Kurds 
should the policy should imply in that region that the Kurds should abandon their language and their cultural habits. It is again sent by Talat Pasha. And point six, the documents explicitly show that the government ordered the regional authorities to ensure that any relocated group not exceed five or 10% of the original population. It is a, for me, it's a very new discovery. Some scholars such as myself learned of the five or 10% policy from the documents related to the Armenian deportation 1915 May. It was written by the general staff to Talat Pasha, and you can find almost in all Turkish sources this document, where Anwar Pasha asked that in the relocation, the uh, population must, be, must not exceed 5 or 10 percent. And first interpretation was this is something they try to cover up. That's why they write this 5 or 10 percent issue. And now I discovered there are hundreds and hundreds of documents written about these 5 and 10 percent regulations. It shows that it was not a cover-up issue, but a calculated policy, and it is more important, applied not only to Armenians, but to Arabs, Kurds, Albanians, Bosnians, and the others. I can give some examples, but important thing, in each region, the government kept continual track of population percentages, constantly asking the numbers of both of expelled groups and remaining relocated groups in a particular place. And in regions where the Armenians were deported, today deported to, they should not be more than 10% of the population of the local population in that location. Now, it gives us a very clear picture why there were a second wave of massacre 1916 summer months in Derzor area in Iraq. There were a huge massacre after the deportation action ended 1915 December. 1916 summer months, around 200,000 Armenians were killed in Iraq deserts and especially in Derzor area because there were telegrams says that don't send anybody to Derzor region. The population already there exceeds the 10%. And there are also documents sent to certain regions like Antalya. It says that it is not necessary to deport the Armenian from the surrounding region because it is already less than 10%. Or in certain regions also, we think that the Armenians were relocated all from Anatolia towards the Syrian and uh, Iraq deserts. In certain regions, they relocated the Armenian within the same province so that they will get, again, these 5 or 10 percent regulations. So it was a very important policy, and there were regulations about the Al Albanians, published, 19, sent to the regions 1916. 
There was a special uh, regulations about the Kurds sent to the region 1916. And in all these regulations, it is clearly written that the new relocated population should not exceed 5 or 10 percent of the local population of that region. So, point seven. The documents prove without a doubt the Ottoman documents that I'm talking about. The Armenians were treated different from other ethnic groups and it openly shows a genocidal intention on the part of ruling party. First example from this document is a letter written by Talat Pasha, the Interior Ministry, May 26, to the Grand Vizier, to the Prime Minister. You can find these documents as summary almost in all Turkish sources, as an official document. And interestingly enough, even though they published almost the entire text of other official documents, in none of the Turkish books you can find a complete translation or transcription of this letter of Talat Pasha. Because in that letter, Talat Pasha openly mentions that the aim of deportation is to achieve complete, I'm translating from the Turkish, to complete complete and fundamental elimination of this concern. It's described long in the letter. There is a concern of Armenian problem, creates a lot of problem for the state, and so now says Talat Pasha, it is time to achieve complete and fundamental elimination of this concern. This is one example, and it shows the policy towards the Armenians, and one important telegram is that is the telegram of Talat, uh, Interior Ministry, sent to the Arbakir region, June 29, 1915. In that telegram, after reporting that the estimated number of Christians, it's very important, these differences, the number of Christians massacred in the Arbakir exceeded 2,000. This is Talat Pasha's description. And Talat then warns the governor the policy and disciplinary measures adopted against Armenians are absolutely not to be extended to other Christians. So it says, don't kill the other Christians. There is no interrogation against the governor. There is nothing, only warning him that the political and military measures, political and disciplinary measures adopted against the Armenian should not extend to other Christians. In another telegram sent again by interior ministry to the governor of Ankara, Talat requested information as to whether the Armenians who were being deported were still alive. It is a telegram from 25, December 25, 1915. So, this is the one subtitle of the point seven. Second, I will make four different points also. 
that shows the genocidal intent of the Ottoman authorities. From the Interior Ministry archival documents, I'm not talking, as I mentioned, the other uh, materials. There are documents in Ottoman archives that clearly illustrates that the Armenians were treated differently from other groups. Why? According to the United Nations Convention of Genocide, forcibly transferring children of one group to another is an important element of the genocide. There were five acts of crime in this convention, and one is the forcibly transferring of children from one group to the other group. We have documents, I have documents, maybe dozens in my hand, to show that Armenian children being taken away from Armenians forcibly and handed out to Muslim families and orphanages. The girls were also forcibly married to Muslim men. The Ottoman archives, full of such correspondence of Talat, the interior ministry, sends almost to each provinces, married the girls to the Muslim so that they should lose their being an Armenian and take the kids, children away and put in Muslim families. These are the orders sent from central authority to each provinces when you go to the Istanbul archives in the interior ministry cipher documents, you will find all these documents there. Third point, the Ottoman archives also are full of documents that shows that the conversion of Armenians to Islam was not a sufficient reason to allow them to remain in their homes. The common knowledge, we say that the converted Armenian could stay in their villages, and so they stayed. But as we know from the sources, as we learned, in the beginning of the deportation procedure, some Armenians allowed to be converted as a way of escaping deportation, but after the number of converts became quite large, the government decided to ignore the religion as a criterion. Many telegrams then gave orders to deport the converted Armenians as well. And my explanation is the number of converted Armenians were already exceeding 510% regulation that they had in mind, so they decided to send even the Armenians converted to the Muslim. And point four, as a common myth of the conflict is that we believe there were no Armenians deported from Istanbul and Izmir. The Ottoman archives today, the documents shows that the Armenians were deported from Istanbul and Izmir also. You have these documents and in that sense, this information coincides with the information found in British and German archives, and it's very interesting. And you have the same information in Armenian sources also. Armenians, their birthplaces were outside of Istanbul, for example. Armenians who were not married, Bekar, single they were in the list of 
the Armenians who should be deported. And according to some German sources, there were the number of Armenians deported from Istanbul around 30,000, which could be a huge exaggeration. But from Ottoman documents, it coincides with the Armenian reports that there were different waves of sending Armenians from Istanbul. Started April and ended 1915 December, and I found five different occasions that the Armenians were sent from Istanbul as groups. And you can find the same information in American missionary reports. For example, she writes from Konya and says that the group from Istanbul now arrived and they were walking. I mean, they didn't use a train, for example. So this is the other important position. Fifth point, one of the most important claims of the Turkish position that the Armenian properties, homes, lands, and businesses left behind were sold by committees of central government and the funds from the sales were given to the Armenians in their homes, in their new areas. And there are indeed certain decisions of the Ottoman government how to use or how to tackle with the Armenian properties remain at the back. The first decision concerning both confiscated properties and plans for relocation was made May 27, 1915. According to this decision, food and maintenance of the Ar deported Armenians on road at their final destination would be provided using an existing government funds for refugees. And according to this law, new settlements were to be established by the government which would provide land, housing, agricultural equipment, seed grain, and other necessary supplies. It should be given to the Armenians according to this law. And there were another regulation, again in the same direction, published June 10, 1915, and there were 34 separate sections related to the same subject matter, how the remaining properties should be sold and how it should be given to the Armenians in their new regions. And more regulations in that direction were issued, and the last and the most important of these was issued on September 26, 1915. And three were, there were two fundamental principles underlying all these laws. First, the Armenian would never be coming back, and the property which they left behind would, according to certain criteria set by the government, be distributed to the new settlers who replaced them, if the Muslim came to do, and they should, of course, distribute among themselves the Armenian properties in the villages. And secondly, the Armenians were to be compensated for the properties which they left behind. It is because of 
these clearly stated principles that we have a strong argument that there were a genocidal intent of the Ottoman authorities. While there are dozens of official documents in existence which outline how the property of the Armenians was going to be used, there isn't a single one available to show that any Armenian actually received compensation for their lost property. There is no one single document. It's amazing. There is no a single piece of evidence that a parcel of land was given to someone when they arrived at their destination, nor that any goods were turned over to them, nor that any Armenian was ever compensated for the loss of the property which was left behind. If the intent had been, as stated, to have the Armenians resettled elsewhere, there would have been proof of it in the archival documentation. There have been hundreds of Ottoman documents today made available, but not a single one to prove the official Turkish position that the Armenians were compensated for their financial losses. And I tell you more. On the contrary, we have dozens of documents that clearly illustrate the systematic way in which this money and property were put to use. And it was the other uses. We can see from the Ottoman documents that there were five chief ways of using Armenian properties. First, according to archival materials that I have, the, Muslim, the Armenian properties in the regions were distributed among the Muslim in the region to create a Muslim bourgeois. It is written in Talat's telegram, interior minister telegrams, in order to create an Islam wealthy class, we have to distribute this property with a chief prices to the local Muslim businessmen. This was one way of usage Armenian properties. Second, properties were given to Muslim immigrants who resettled in the Armenian villages, and according to these telegrams, immigrants should receive preferences in receiving empty homes. There are cases, they gave, for example, one factory or one building to an Armenian Muslim businessman, but then Muslim immigrants came to the region. And Talat says, this property that was previously given to this business guy should be taken away and given to the new coming Muslim immigrants. This is the second way. And Muslim immigrants should not be charged for distributing of the Armenian clothes and the other properties. Third, interesting, very interesting, according to Ottoman documents, the Armenian properties were used to cover military expenses during the war. In various telegrams sent to the region, we see order to have all of the income realized from the sale of crops from Armenian fields sent to military, or for lists to be made of Armenian properties so that they might be put to use by the military and certain buildings also was given to the, were given to the military. Fourth reason, 
the Armenian property was even used to fund their deportation. There are telegrams. It says that the revenue that you gained from Eskisheir, for example, should send to Diyarbakir to cover the cost of Armenian relocation in that region to, the, to, to the cover the expenses of the Diyarbakir uh, provinces. So, this was the fifth, then the, uh, this was the fourth reason to fund the deportation. Fifth, some of the buildings in better condition were used for governmental purposes such as prison, schools, and hospitals. It is written in documents. That building in that city should be used as a school and so on. This is the other way of using the Armenian properties. These documents reveal also another important story that we know. Why the governing powers, Union and Progress Party, frequently sent delegates to the provinces to investigate the pillaging of Armenian properties by local administrators. The government wanted Armenian properties identified in pursuit of their own political ends and for this reason had no tolerance for private pillaging which took place. And there were commissions sent to the regions and there were certain cases also. There were files opened against the individuals who tried to misuse these Armenian properties for their own purposes. So, and this all shows the, there was a plan behind usage. Of course, there were pillaging, there were corruptions, and so on, but there were also a very conscious governing policy of that region. Uh, uh, regarding the properties. Last example, let me give one example and uh, finish my uh, talk. Uh, there is a very common belief uh, that there were civil war in the region and there were Ottoman authorities couldn't control the deportation and so on. There are documents in the uh, Interior Ministry. It shows amazingly how Talat Pasha were personally Interior Ministry in charge of controlling the number, even the numbers of the deportees. One example. End of 1916, a group of 256 Armenians deported from Izmir. And Talat asked the governor of Marash, where about these 256 people? They should have reached this region. They haven't reached yet. And was asking about the, what happened to these 256 region people. Another example, 44 Armenians sent from Aydın province came up in Marash 28. Where is these 14 people? Talat furiously asking the governors of Adana, all governors on the way, where is this, what happened to these 14 people? This shows there was a real strong control of the deportation, and there were telegrams also to the region. When the Armenians escaped the deportation, Talat was asking about the numbers of the escapees and eventually whereabouts of these refugees, and so on. So, this all shows to us that 
there was a really calculated policy of Ottoman authorities in the relocating of the Armenians, and it was destruction of the Armenian population, and mostly within a concept of the new population policy to create a sort of governable territory in Anatolia under the control of Union and Progress Party. Cherkez Hassan, he is an Ottoman officer, appointed by Jamal Pasha in Syria province for the relocation of the Armenians in that region. There was a conflict between Jamal and the central authorities. Jamal was the governor of uh, Syria, and he really wanted sort of relocate the Armenian in the region, and he appointed Cherkes Hassan Bey for this relocation issue, and after that Cherkes started his job, he was called by the governors in the region and said that, no, no, the aim is killing of the Armenian, you should not organize the relocating, it creates a problem between Jamal and the uh, local governors, and the Talat interviewer and said that all relocation issues is the issue of the Ottoman government interior ministry. Army has, Jamal was the army commander, army has nothing to do with this relocation, and Cherkes, attempt, Cherkes Hassan should resign. And he wrote his memoirs, 1919, in the Ottoman newspaper Alemdar, six day published, and in these memoirs, he says that after he experienced the witness the killing of the Armenian in the region, he sum up the whole event with following. Stop talking of deportation and murder. Say instead that this was a decision to exterminate the Armenian nation and there will no longer be any need for arguments. This is his concluding remarks and this is also my concluding remarks. Thanks you very much. basic reason according to me. Now, first of all, it is very difficult to single out one reason. All these masculines is a combination and culmination of different developments and different events. We cannot pinpoint only one. But the major, if you ask me, this is my personal opinion, was the political one. If we consider the Ottoman history as a history of decline and loss, losing territories, one after another, the firm belief of the Ottoman authorities was that after the loss of Balkan War 1930s, it was the turn of Anatolia. They firmly believe that they are going to lose Eastern Anatolia as an independent Armenian state, regardless whether it was a demand of Armenians or not. There was a reform agreement between Russia and the Ottoman government signed February 1914. And according to this reform agreement, the eastern provinces should be divided into two major provinces and an independent governor, foreigner, should be 
appointed as governor, two different governors to these regions, and it must be a sort of separate autonomy developed in that region. And for the, not only for the Ottoman authorities, but for the, everyone who were working on this negotiation and on this reform plan, they all knew it was the beginning of an independent state of Armenia in that region, because it was not different in the case of Serbia 1812. It was not different in the case of Greek, in the case of Bulgaria, in the case of Romania. In, the, in all cases, it started with certain reforms, autonomy, and so on, and ended up with an independent state. In 1914, when the Ottoman authorities signed this agreement, they believed that it was the beginning of losing the Eastern Anatolia. And Jamal Pasha, the governor of Syria and the, uh, one of the important triumphs of the Union and Progress Party, in his memoirs, he wrote that one of the reasons why we entered the war was not to implement this reform plan. It was not a willing act to Ottoman authorities. And when they entered the war, 1914 November, the first thing that they did, they annulled this agreement as not guilty. So important reason for me, mostly the fear that they are going to lose eastern provinces and they declared Armenians as a threat and not only the Armenian from eastern provinces, according to this way of thinking, they could have relocated or moved the Armenians only from the provinces that could be eventually an independent Armenian state. It could be an alternative, but instead of doing this, they considered the entire Armenian population as a threat and they moved the Armenians from almost from every villages of Anatolia. This is my explanation. Yes, uh, if I understood it correctly, you were using the term uh, ordered by Salat Pasha, who was the minister of interior, to order the regulations in law to use all CSS. But from a legal perspective, all of CSS were different from each other. So what was the law of the land at that time? Now, we have to first distinguish two different categories of documents. Laws passed through cabinet. There was no parliament at that moment, and according to Ottoman constitution, the, governor, the government was, how do you call it, uh, they could, temporary. temporary laws, they call it. Exactly. And they should have brought, when the parliament was opened, they should bring there and then pass through the parliaments. And uh, first, the laws that I mentioned, May, June, July, September, they were all temporary laws of the government. The second category that I talked, the telegrams, these are the regulations of the interior ministry. They are not laws. Interior ministry, they used the telegrams, cipher telegrams, as a quick way of the communication of that time. So the uh, cipher office of the Ottoman interior ministry were established at the beginning of the 20th century. It was not an institution before that. 
with the development of the telegram. And so these are not the laws that I'm talking about that the Talat sending to the regions. These were the instructions of the interior ministry to the regions. Generally, government as such had nothing to do with all these events. They even didn't know what happened in the regions. We know from their testimonies. They made these laws, but they thought these laws were good. But all deportation and killing organized as a party activity. It is very important to make this distinction between state and party. Even though Union and Progress Party controlled the entire state, mostly they, essentially they used the party channels for killing and deportations. And Talat Pasha, as interior ministry, has the uh, role of coordinator. There are a lot of examples. Sheikh Islam had no idea about what he heard about that, maybe. I give you one example it makes clear. Said Halim Pasha was the name of the Grand Vizier, uh, the Prime Minister. In his Testimony in 1918 November in Ottoman Parliament, there was an interrogatory commission. Said Halim told in that commission that he has no idea that there were killing in the regions. And any time when he was asking to Talat what's going on, then Talat told him, don't worry, everything is under control. I had no idea, he said, we should believe it. Because, why I believe him? Because I read the Armenian Patriarchal Zevans memoirs. Armenian Patriarch writes, he has a uh, diary in his memoirs, writes, I went to Said Halim and mentioned all these killings and so he said to me, you know what, it's better if you go to talk Talat about all these issues. He's the Grand Vizier. He's the head of the government and he has no authority. In that sense, there were a deportation law, it is the legal act, this is the two-track of the one is the deportation order of the government sent by interior ministry to each governor and parallel to that there were killing orders sent to the regions. Unlawful actions. This is the, how they implemented. How we know that, maybe this is the first category that I didn't mention. Uh, Reshit Akif Pasha was a member of the Ottoman cabinet 1918 after the armistice. He gave a speech uh, mid of November 1918 in the parliament. And in his speech, he said that I saw among the documents of interior ministry an order of the party for the killing of the Armenian, which was sent by the party secretaries to the region. So we know that there are a lot of other uh, documents and testimonies. We know that they used two tracks. One is official deportation, and the other is the killing order mostly sent to the regions by party secretaries.
So it is the right of state to kill the citizens. very interesting. I need to see the documents about that. Now, there are two important parts in your uh, argumentation. I totally agree with you. Every genocide has a reason. I mean, the danger, real or perceived, it is not important whether this danger is a real danger or perceived danger. Certain authorities, rulers, see it as, as a problem. And at that moment, it is not very important whether this threat was real or, or a perceived threat they went to the action. And second important part, in genocide, of course there are always reasons. And there are, if you can develop a scenario, you can say that there was civil war in the region, and during the civil war, genocide had happened, occurred. It is also possible. In Rwanda case, it was a clash between neighboring countries, and during the war, it developed towards the genocide. This means there are always reason, and the uprising of a group, for example, it could be also true that, let's say, imagine that Armenians were uprising in all eastern provinces, and the state decided to kill all of them. This is also, I mean, one of the reason. It cannot explain, uh, it explains the reason of the event, but the issue is whether we use this argument as justification of the killing or deportation of the people. There Depends. If you argue in that way, it could be making an argument. Why not? I mean, uh, this is a very important contested point among the genocide scholars. Where is the boundaries between ethnic? This is the new term that we discovered: ethnic cleansing, uh, especially after Yugoslavia, Bosnian case, and whether or not should we consider the ethnic cleansing as a form of genocide. There are some genocide scholars, especially international law, they argue that ethnic cleansing is not, should not be considered as a genocide. But these are the legal discussions. It's not so important for our discussions, I think, because the legal argument is that if you expelled a group of people, even there were killing during the, outside a certain region, then it should not be called as a genocide because genocide is an annihilation of a group of people within the certain region without having a plan or, or, or uh, program to expel them outside a certain region. So regarding the uh, history, of course, the entire Balkan history was the expelling and killing of the Muslim populations. And these victims in Balkan, 
when they came to Anatolia, they became perpetrator. One of the important sources of the Teşkilat-ı Mahsusa units were the immigrants from Balkan. There were telegrams, these are not from the Ottoman archives that I'm talking, in uh, uh, Istanbul trials, there were read these documents. Union and Progress Party Central Committee were asking to the region to find the Muslim immigrants from the region to be a member of the Teşkilat-ı Mahsusam units. And these immigrants were, became an important part of these killing groups and implemented these killing actions. Now, the clashes, if there were clashes, it is not an argument against the, what to call it genocide or not. The important question that you have, whether there were Muslim killings during that period and the character of it. And it is an important point. And for example, the deportation took place 1915, started May, beginning of May, and, and there were other deportations before 1915 May, but ended almost beginning of 1916. Normally, if there were Armenians who were fighting in that region, these Armenians should attack the convoys to rescue their own people. There were no one single record about the Armenian rebellions or activities against the Ottoman authorities. There were four major cases that we know. These were the Shebin Karaisar, Afyon, one, and in a region around Sivas. In all these four cases, this was the resistance of the Armenians who were against being deported. So there were, it is maybe if you are an historian, I urge you, not, I mean, in order to make these statements, there were clashes and one killed the other, and so not going to easy way, when, where, which Armenian group, and against whom. Then we can have a general picture. My argument is, during the genocide period, there were no regular attacks of Armenian chattas or, or groups against the Ottoman authorities. What we have are following. There were Armenian volunteer groups in the Russian army. And the number of these Russian in army, there were six different battalions, and each of them, the number of were around 2,000. And the Russian authorities dismissed these units, dispelled these units 1916 February when they uh, occupied the Erzurum, because they thought they were not useful enough. These Armenian voluntary groups, when they lead the Russian army, during that period, when they, within the Russian army, they killed, of course, Muslims. But we don't know exact whether they were th these Armenian volunteers or the Kazakhs in the Russian army or the regular uh, Russian army forces. We thought, for example, 1914 in Kars, you will find one document in Ottoman archives also. It says that around 30,000 Muslims were killed in Kars when the Russian army were advancing. Now, according to the Russian sources that we have, these were the Russian regular army and Cossacks 
and everyone used this as an argument against the Armenian volunteers. So these were the war crimes of the Russian army, and this has nothing to do in that sense, the clashes in the regions where Armenian located. And until 1912 summer, it is also very important to know, for your information, Dashnaksyun, the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, were in an alliance with the Union and Progress Party. They were not fighting each other. Union and Progress Party were fighting their own opposition, maybe, Hurriyet and Ihtilaf, I mean the Ottoman Islam uh, opposition, they were fighting against it, and the alliance they had, it was the Armenians, Dashnak organization. They were in the same alliance, and they participated in the elections also together. Even more, 1914, for example, we think that they were all fighting with each other, Armenian against Turkish state. I give you one other example. It's very interesting. 1914, there is a Kurdish rebellion in Bitlis. And the reason of this Kurdish rebellion was the Russian instigation. Russian, a clever, big power policy. They uh, supported the Armenians for the Armenian reforms. On the other hand, they supported the Kurds against the Armenians, and they armed the Kurds. And they said to the Kurds, oh, you, you will see there is a reform packet it's against the interest of the Kurds. And in Bitlis region, Kurds organized an uprising. Who suppressed this Kurdish uprising in the region? According to Armenian and Ottoman sources, the Dashnaktsyuns and the Union and Progress Party worked together 1914 to suppress the Kurdish rebellion in that region. What I'm trying to say is history is more complicated than we think. We should avoid making general statements in that way. short book in English, and uh, 
unless I'm misremembering, and, and of course this is the documentation that comes indirectly out of the military archives in Austin. And, uh, 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 but again, it's Ottoman archival documents. You've been talking about Ottoman archival documents. He says in, in his discussion of this, uh, in, in talking about the, what's going on around the time of the Zion Rebellion, if I'm not badly mistaken, he talks about rebellion in every province or some, some such expression. Talking about the situation in Anatolia, and uh, 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 I mean that's the most uh, detailed thing I had seen about it up until this point. And I see you find, don't find that credible at all. So I, maybe we could uh, nail this point down a little bit. You have further comments about it. It's a very important point. I mean, first of all, your approach that we should consider the Armenian genocide within the context of the declining of the Ottoman Empire and emerging of nation states and in that sense the ethnic expulsion of the groups from one region to other, it's a perfect contextualization of the general problem. Regarding to the uh, Armenian rebellions, it is really a good task of every historian to go to the archives and try to find some documents where the rebellions are, who these rebelled Armenians, and how they rebelled. My argument is, first of all, 1916, Union and Progress Party made a Congress, party Congress, just during the, after, short after the, it was 1916 November months, party Congress. You are organizing a party Congress, and you have to justify your policy aren't you? They wrote a report on the Armenian issue in the party congress. What you should do if there were Armenian rebellions almost in every province in your report 1916, so fresh, just within the cases, you have to make a list of these rebellions. Where they are and what they did. And you have to publicate these issues also after the armistice also because you have to defend your position. Now, in this 1916 Union and Progress report, there were mentioned on the forum four incidents. And these are well documented in Armenian sources also. One famous example is the Urfa. October 1915, the Urfa Armenians, after they get the news that the all Armenians were killed on their wares because the Ur Armenians were coming from the uh, north part of the Urfa, and they resist. And the German also participated in suppressing the Armenian rebellion there. This is well known and documented. So we have to really document where these rebellions are and what they are, what their characters are. There are these three, four cases as a resistance to deportation that we know. One, two, I'll give you two another examples to sort of uh, so-called Armenian rebellion. One is Yozgat, the other is Sivas. I was talking with the students outside and giving the examples of this. In Yozgat, you will see these documents within the general staff. They, the Turkish general staff published the documents related to the Armenian deportation in order to show that it was not a genocide and so on. In these documents, there are uh, written telegrams mentioning that uprising in Boazlian and Yozgat region. In Yozgat trial, the officers who wrote this telegram confessed that there was no rebellion. There were only 15 or 20 
Armenians escaped from the military and they went on the mountain and all the events mentioning and written on the Armenian account actually caused by the gendarmerie went to the, that region. This is same report given by the officer in the court. Another example, in this report you will find another document on the uprising in Sivas. From Sivas, army officers, not only the army officers and the Sivas governor, Muammer, they bought two different telegrams sent to the Istanbul mentioning uprising of 30,000 Armenians in Sivas. 1915, April, May, May. And according to these telegrams, to these reports, these 30,000 Armenians rebelled and walked without happening anything and joined to the Russians. Now we have some Russian documents, thanks some historians working on the Russian-Ottoman relations. It came out, there were indeed a group of Armenians leading but the revolutionary Murat with 60 people after hearing that there will be deportation escaped with these 60 people to Russia. You can also find documents, testimonies given by the Ottoman officers Süleyman Faik Pasha, third army commander in Sivas region. He said in the trial in Istanbul that he got a strict order from third army commander Mahmoud Kamil Pasha to send to Istanbul exaggerated news reports about the Armenian rebellions. So these are, I can make more examples. What I don't know is really where these rebellions were, who rebelled against whom, and otherwise you will see the deportation pictures. Ten in Armenian memoirs you read that. 10,000 Armenians escorted by 10 gendarmerie. There were no, in that sense, big resistance. The basic problem, actually, that we are dealing with, we are trying to give an answer, why this Armenian, on their way to deportation, why they didn't rebel? Why they obey? This is the same question in Jewish Holocaust we have. Why they really, there are pictures, memoirs, 10,000 people Convoyed by ten gendarmerie and no rebellion. They were really ready for their destiny. This is, this is the basic question, not the Armenian rebellions in that region. This is my first, yeah. This is a legal discussion. Uh, if you compare the Armenian 1915 killing and deportation with the Muslim expulsion from the Balkan, it's a tough question. You can consider the Balkan issue as an ethnic cleansing or war crime because you cannot find the intention of the Turks or Muslims because they were Muslims. In the genocide, the basic problem is to show that the central authorities 
had an intent part or whole the, end, the group as such, it says. You have to target the group because of the group's character and the destruction of this group. In Balkan case, mostly it was expelled from the war zone and during the war they were massacred. In that sense, if I, I would argue that it, it is close to genocidal killing in Balkan, what happened to the Muslims. I won't describe this as a genocide because for me the intent of the Greek authorities, let's say, was not to close the borders and try to kill, alienate the Muslims within this territory. Their policy was exactly the same Ottoman policy 1914, some uh, spring months in Western Thrace. I won't call, for example, what happened to Greece 1914 spring months as a genocide because they were massacred, but the intent was to expel them outside these provinces in Western Thrace and the Western part of Anatolia. In Armenian case, there is a very clear order, for example, from Union and Progress. I read the telegram. Are the, are, this is the original telegram used in Istanbul trials, sent by Bahattin Shakir, one of the doctors, arch-architects of the genocide. Are the Armenians who are being dispatched from there being liquidated? Are the troublesome people you tell us you have expelled and dispersed being exterminated? Answer explicitly. There are these sort of telegrams. It shows that the intent is to destroy the Armenian population and ethnic group as such within the Ottoman territories. There were, for example, ask of American authorities to take some Armenians as refugees to America. <coughs> Ottoman authorities declined. They didn't accept. Any help to the Armenian convoys by Americans and the German missionaries and the governments were declined. There are, I didn't mention of that aspect of the issue. Uh, Talat orders strictly, for example, to arrest the people who trying to give help to the Armenian illegal. And it was also forbidden. The aim was, I mean, we can show this destruction, the intent of destruction of the Armenian population. This is the basic difference, I think. But it is very close, of course. Another important point that I have to tell you, according to international law today, there were three basic sort of crimes, macro crimes. Crime of war, war crime, crime against humanity, and the genocide. And all international legal scholars agree that the boundaries between these three crimes are now blurry. They are now very close to each other, how it is written in the international law. So, I mean, it's up to you. You can use for the Balkan case also genocide. The other can argue against it. The most important problem is the condemnation of these acts. This is the basic problem. We have to condemn every mass killing. This is the important moral basis discussing all that problems. Yes. It is a bad thing and it should not happen. Nobody has right 
to kill the population, whatever the reason is. I think it would be a wonderful beginning. This is my position. Oh, the future, there are different. Future is, I call the future is the Japanese, Japan-German penundulum. Japan, as you remember, only apologized for the massacres in China, but it has no repercussion for the Japanese society. Oh, sorry, it happened. This was it. This is the one part of the penundulum. And the other is the Germany. And it says that, call it genocide, and get ready for compensation and so on. Where Turkey is going to stay between this Japan-Germany penundulum depends on the politics. It's not the issue of the academicians. And it will decide until 2015 if Turkey has real interest to be a part of European Union. Turkey must acknowledge something, but what, where, and how will be the result of political negotiation. As academician, I urge parties to establish a historian commission and to create an atmosphere of discussing open, free speech on that issue in Armenia and in Turkey also. Okay, other questions? Well, thank you so much. This has been a most interesting and enlightening afternoon, and I'd also like to thank the audience for their interesting participation.